Welcome everybody to another episode of El Cafecito. My name is Leonardo Casenza. I'm your host for this third season, reminding everyone that El Cafecito was sponsored by the Latin American Studies program at the University of Toronto. And now I can go for my introduction. I think that post-colonial studies are just a revamp of Marx. Bom dia, boa tarde, boa noite. Hello everyone, I am Gilly and Marx was right. Hola, hello Cuba, my name is Raquel Serrano and let's look at post-colonial feminism. Okay, so we're here um, today, today together to talk about post-coloniality and post-colonial studies. And here is the objective of this podcast is to be quite a broad introduction and a general introduction to the, the thought of related to post-coloniality. And I'd like to first pose this very basic question of what is post-colonial studies? Because um, in many ways, we can just reinterpret it and say that it's, oh, it's studies of people understanding colon colonialism after it happened. Is it that or is it is it just that? Well, if I had to give a, a definition in a tweet, Leo, I think that's what I'd say. I'd say it's the study, the academic study more like the academic study of the the effects and consequences of this brutal imperialism for many, many generations uh, in regions throughout the world, be it Latin America or Asia or Africa. And that that's how I describe it, really. Yeah, I will maybe just add that it's like this reinterpretation of the historic process of capitalism and how it's just like providing a different alternative to the dominant uh, a normative discourse that we've been following or thinking of for, for many, many years. Yeah, that's an important aspect of it. I think the important aspect of post-colonial studies is to try to critically understand reality in a way to find a solution out of it. So in many ways, it tries to deconstruct in, in Derrida's sentient of deconstruction. So deconstruct um, colonialism, deconstruct modernity, these concepts, these broad concepts that um, that reign in our uh, modern epistemology and attempts to then um, break these patterns and try to um, rise with a new solution out of them. So the, the arrow, there's always an arrow pointing forward that, uh, that all of these post-colonial authors have that move them forward towards a goal out of the situation. So they're always critical of the current situation or moving to out of the situation and how people and them as scholars and us as Latinos and as, as, as Latin Americans, we can produce our own history and recreate uh, new patterns of history that will break these old patterns of coloniality that was imposed upon us. And an important aspect, and I think what I, what I said in the early introduction that they just revamped Marx was that I think a lot of these authors, they built a lot of on Marx thoughts. I think they're all really steeped on, on Marx's thoughts. And it's really interesting to see that because Marx did really didn't really investigate Latin America in many ways because he didn't see Latin America as a pertinent source of analysis. Um, he he many he in many ways saw Latin America's uh, having not having developed the capitalist uh, potentials that Germany had developed or that France had developed at the time or Belgium. So so he didn't see Latin America as a pertinent uh, place of analysis and then. Uh, what his studies of study of capitalism focuses on is on the capitalism's mainly 
of England and of, of Germany. And what these Latin American authors come in to fill in is to show that Marx still has a lot of things to say about Latin America and Marxism um, has a lot of things to say about Latin America and that it can integrate with our own historical um, reality and that it is actually a really historical, historically flexible concept um, to the point where uh, Marxism can be applied to many regions of the world and can actually make sense of the world through this lens of analysis. Um, and it's interesting to see how these uh, these authors, and I think it started um, many with these early Marxist authors, such as Mariategui, who started reinterpreting Marx towards their realities. Mariategui, for example, in the Peru Peruvian reality. Um, another author, I think Gilly might know, Caio Prado Júnior, Brazilian author, Brazilian historian, uh, who interpreted uh, the Brazilian history through a Marxist lens, and he was one who was able to um, index Marxism in the history of Brazil. And I think the post-colonial authors, they, they take within, uh, they take as their veins this critical analysis of the world and this critical analysis of capitalism. And I think their main goal was always to try to fill in uh, what Castro Gomes in his article, Postcoloniality for Dummies, calls Marx's blind spots. And, and in that sense, these authors, uh, they locate themselves always from the periphery. And I think that's an interesting um, point um, to mark uh, their interpretation of Marx, for example, because Marx would say that the, that the, 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 communist, the communist intellectuals should always side with the proletarians, which are always oppressed by the capitalist class. And in that sense, the post-colonial authors, they're always writing from the periphery in the sense that they're authors that are critically positioned at the borders of epistemology. That's what one of the authors, um, Walter Mignolo, which is an famous Argentine post-colonial theorist. Uh, he calls that he operates in the border of epistemology. So they try to locate themselves always at the borders of thinking and at the borders of, of the people that are mostly oppressed by the systems of coloniality and systems of colonialism. So in that sense, they always come from this periphery and come from this uh, from this border epistemology uh, that gives them this very distinct positionality in academia, that gives them a very powerful voice uh, to re reinterpret reality from the positions of the oppressed and out of the oppressor. Yeah, Leo, I totally understand what you mean. And I think this, this, this part we're talking about, how these people always try to see it from the periphery, I think that's the... Because you said a lot, but I think that's... For me, that's what matters the most. Because when you... It's exactly that these people are the people who have been oppressed for many generations, mostly by the Europeans, but I'm not excluding by any in any way, shape, form uh, the United States as well. Uh, but these people who have been oppressed for so many years were and still are in the periphery of society. And I think it's very interesting how these authors that you cited um, are trying to see history, uh, not just history, but uh, history and the, the, these consequences and effects of colonialism through uh, the people who are uh, usually the most um, for, forgotten uh, when studying history and when studying um, these empires and when studying all of these things that led uh, to, the, to the societies that we see today in, in as I said before, uh, the Americas, Africa and um, Asia. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to add is like this important, uh, the, the importance of looking at that there are so many things that are not universal and with many scholars like they they do think that um equality is universal but then we we need to think that not all groups are affected the same way um so i think it's important to recognize these positions of like how um 
different authors uh, and, and people in academia are looking at all these issues of um, coloniality and colonialism and where they where their thoughts are coming from um, based on their experiences and their knowledge of these specific regions that have been for many, many years been um, oppressed and, and left out by the uh, capitalist system that we live in. Yeah, and one of the one of the big strands, and I think, um, in their their historical criticism, is to criticize certain big concepts that have been um, that have been uh, hovering over the history of Latin America and the history of colonialism in Latin America. And one of the one of the big concepts that many of these post-colonial authors uh, try to deconstruct and try to uh, understand is modernity. And, and many of these authors uh, argue that modernity uh, is just another side, that, that, that colonialism is just another side of the coin to modernity and that they're all both, they're constituted uh, in the same way and in the same process. And uh, Enrique de Sel, which is uh, another really famous post-colonial um, author, argues that uh, modernity was actually created um, with the emergence of colonialism and that the that uh, that it was this organic process in which colonialism developed out of this idea that the European man was a rational man was the universal man was uh, capable of applying Cartesian and rational principles to the universe um, and this idea of universality of the European man uh, created a, a dichotomy and a hierarchy between this idea of the European man and the barbaric tribes or the people that are uncivilized. Uh, so Cell argues that this the constitution, this idea of modernity was constituted together with colonialism so that this phase of European rationality was only able to be constructed because there was the, uh, the creation and the oppression of uh, colonial nations throughout this whole process, supporting the European integration process, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's something that we can actually see here in, in Canada with uh, the residential school system and of how Europeans were uh, like, so, so the indigenous people of Canada is like these, or, or saw the need of like yeah, taking the, the Indian out of the, out of the, the students that uh, attended residential schools. Um, and I think also that quite relates like this idea of um, these polarizations of like the, the rich and the poor, the develop and the underdeveloped, the, the modern societies and the ones that are not as modern with how uh, the white savior complex plays a huge role in our daily lives. Uh, at least in my experience here in Canada, I do, I do think that there's a lot of white savior complex examples that take place. Not only with um, those the, the the opportunities that of uh, people that go to Africa for two days to help uh, build a house or I don't know prepare care packages for people in need in Africa, but then they take these pictures. They kind of like portray that like the the white part of their lives are what these people in Africa are supposed to have, and that they are the ones that are coming or that are going to Africa to save these poor people that are being oppressed but what meets like they're not understanding sorry is that they they cannot 
um, acknowledge where these oppressions are coming from. And that relates a lot to the history of Africa, to uh, colonialism, to um, the different oppressions that people from Africa have experienced for so many years. So I think it's just important to connect how um, these uh, things that have happened in the past are also still present in our daily um, lives. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, Leo, for what you were talking about, about this idea of modernity and how it separated um, this, no, it developed really this notion of the, um, as you were saying, the, the universal, uh, rational, European white man from the barbaric indigenous person of, of these peripheral territories, such as the Americas, Asia and Africa. I've said this so many times. Anyways, um, but um, I wanted to dive a little this is a bit of a tangent but i think it's important um to to talk about as well how this idea of modernity it's separated uh, it went as far as to separate us from nature in a way that hadn't really been seen before right because um with this idea of modernity we have this notion today that um as rational people as as people who live in cities that nature is something that is completely separate from us and this idea that we have even if we have this idea even if we don't think we think like this, we, we all sort of do. Um, and this idea came from um, this this developing of modernity in the in the beginning of the 17th, 18th century. Um, and it is one of the one of the big reasons for for the climate crisis, Bolivian. We see ourselves so detached and separate from nature because of seeing ourselves as such modern, rational people um, that we in many ways don't care about nature and that's why we one not why exactly but one of the reasons why we found find ourselves in this uh climate crisis again a bit of a tangent but i just thought it was uh, important to, to speak of this idea of modernity connected to the, the climate crisis i think that that's so interesting and i was actually having a conversation with one of my roommates the other day about how sustainable lifestyles are now well first of all they're like they're very uh, limited because you need to have enough like have money to buy all these sustainable products however though there are some things that indigenous people both latin america and other parts of the world have already been doing for so many years and then now just like this idea of like sustainability and like what sustainability is supposed to look like then that we are appropriating these uh like the knowledge that indigenous people have had and shared with their communities for so long and how like this idea with climate change is one of the examples where the Western world or people in positions of power have appropriated the knowledge of minority groups that either because they, they don't know English or they don't have access to different platforms to share their knowledge are not able to, to connect with, with other people, connect with um, other, other thoughts and just be able to, to share their their knowledge, their work, and how it operates, how it benefits their communities. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It definitely digs um, to the core of the modernity arguments when these post-colonial post authors argue <clears throat> that modernity is uh, inherently universalist, right? It's uh, this idea that it will appropriate everything with its rational scientific methods and that everything can be understood and appropriated it and organized um, through this lens, uh, through this uh, rational lens that can be, that can develop the human potentiality to the universal, as Hegel would put it. Um, and in that sense, many of these post-colonial authors are really critical to this Hegelian idea of the universal, um, that it would in fact 
um, constitutes another side of, 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 of colonialism and that it's, it can only be support, this idea can only be supported uh, through, the, uh, through the systematic oppression and violence of indigenous people, of colonized people, of colonized nations, um, because that's what this kind of mentality holds, right? Is that if, the, if uh, our vision of the world, if the European vision of the world is universal and perfect, and therefore it's justifiable to destroy all the nations and consider other nations uncivilized and it's uh, justifiable to perpetrate all, all types of acts of violence towards them. So it creates this very powerful narrative that has uh, transversed all throughout Latin American history of Europeans uh, dominating the discourse through their idea of European superiority and this idea being constructed on historical models of the past that in what the cell would say are actually are, are absolutely wrong, right? It's this idea that uh, this uh, widely known concept that Europe has come has uh, come from the Romans and from the the Greek Roman civilization, and that Europeans were were born that was the birth of democracy, and that these Greek Roman uh, civilizations uh, were uh, eventually bred all the empires and bred the imperialism and bred the uh, the colonies in European history. But that's not the facts, right? And and that's what uh, Dussel argues a lot. And he tries to deconstruct this argument uh, by going through all the historical narratives and understanding that um, it's, it's just an, another one of those historical narratives that uh, is created by European modernity um, to sh to create this timeline in which it presents itself as the pinnacle of existence, right? It's everything has built on towards this path of modernity in which European civilization would be the culmination of development, right? And anything that does that exists uh, beyond that or in negation to that or an alternative to that would be uncivilized and wrong. Um, and that's why I think uh, what Raquel was saying is really important is that these uh, these uh, historical and uh, argumentative constructs that are used by they can help us understand the reality around us, right? They're these lens through which we can understand the colonial relations that still affect us uh, up to nowadays. Yeah, I absolutely agree with this uh, that Raquel was, was talking about, uh, how this idea is super important. But I just want to build a bit, Leo, on what you said uh, before you were talking about how um, there is this idea that uh, the world we know as today and the, the entire development of the world really emerged from this idea that the ideals, the ideals and ideas of the Greeks and of the Romans and of how everything built from that, this notion of vampire, everything came uh, from Europe and specifically from Greece and Rome. Um, but when that's absolutely not true, and you, you said that very well, but I just want to build, a, build on that a bit um, because... Even here in Latin America, we had two massive empires and many other smaller empires, but two massive empires uh, in, in modern day Mexico and the shape of the Aztec Empire in South America and the shape of the Inca Empire. And they had this, the, this, the every structure of empire you'd think uh, when compared to European empires, of course, there were many regional uh, differences, but they, it did have this general uh, the general. Uh, uh, shape uh, of an empire, even though there has never been, there had uh, up to that point not been any contact between uh, the Europeans and the native uh, Latin, native inhabitants of, of Latin America. So yeah, I just wanted to, to make that very clear that this this notion that uh, we owe everything to the Greeks and the Romans is just plain out false. 
And I mean, I think this criticism goes uh, straight deep into uh, many American values, for example, right? Uh, this idea that American democracy comes from uh, John Locke and the liberal principles and, um, and democracy as as this Roman Roman uh, classical system of rights. Um, and the cell is one to, was the first one to argue to say that uh, it um, it actually, is not it doesn't constitute the same uh trail of, of historicity right it's actually a historical construct created by by modernity and by uh europeans in order to differentiate differentiate themselves from the from the from their colonials right and in many ways that's what these uh post-colonial authors are arguing is that there are different narratives and these narratives um they they dominate the scene and they and they control people in many ways um, and that the dominant narrative of, of modernity um, applied many, uh, let's say they it's it brought many it brought many real world uh, consequences with it, right? It's not just this idea that hangs in the air that's modernity and that Europeans are perfect. It has practical consequences, right? So at the beginning of the 15th, 16th century, we had ra racial taxonomy systems in Argentina and Brazil, right? Uh, that's a, a clear racial categorization based on European principles of beauty and of whiteness. Um, and that comes from this idea of modernity. So these all these are all concepts that operate at the back of these very practical historical determinations that happen like one after the other in the history of Latin America. And um, all of them um, encompass in general this critique of, of, of colonialism. And I think uh, they have different uh, ways of seeing the world and of operating. I think uh, the cell in many ways is focused more on the, the philosophy side of it, on the academic side of it, while uh, Mignolo has a more has a focus on the geocultural aspects of it, and understanding that um, Europe and Latin America are geo geohistorical cultural constructs, and that these constructs operate with uh, with uh, in 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 uh, with distinction, and and that in fact this university's discourse that was created by European geocultural constructs. Um, was not a creation by the bourgeoisie. And that's something that many Marxists would apply and would say that uh, the, the colonialism only emerged with the bourgeoisie, only emerged with uh, with capitalist relations. Um, but Mignolo, for example, argued that it'll come, it actually comes before that. It comes from the period of colonialism. Right in 1492, uh, when you had the discovery of the Americas, when you had this whole historical process uh, that's when modernity and colonialism were born and integrated into Latin American society all at once. Uh, so it's 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 a really it's a really interesting lens through which uh, to analyze our our relations our relations in Latin America today, because uh, it offers it offers not only a an historical account of reality but also uh, a critical perspective through which we can. Uh, we can understand reality and, 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 uh, and critically, critically engage with it, um, other than just uh, accepting the idealisms that come with European modernity would have um, to fight back. And uh, this fight back would come in many different ways. I mean, the cell would say that it's a philosophy of liberation. Um, 
um, but in many ways they offer tools out of this out of to come out of this uh, coloniality but it's yeah, I think uh, I think in a way it's it's really hard uh, to find ways out of this of this system of colonialism and I, I think sometimes they're really brave in trying to find uh, to poke holes out of this situation which is so complex and and so complicated in Latin America I think another I think um, another determinant cons- concept in, in post-colonial studies is the actual critique of what they call colonialism, right? Because it's in the word, um, but we have to understand it that it's not just a historical period, right? What they're arguing is that uh, colonialism is not just a history, but it's uh, economic, it's a political, it's a civic, it's a, an epistemological creation uh, from of one society over the other. That has that creates a system in which raw materials are produced on one end and come out in the other and offer the riches uh, to the European nations from the poorer Latin American regions. So in that sense, racism emerges from this structure of colonialism. And that's, I think, one of uh, Quijano's and Anibal Quijano, which is another post-colonial author, really important. Uh, figure, he's Peruvian, uh, he has this concept called coloniality of power, uh, which is fundamental in understanding what uh, colonialism is in, in many ways in Latin American studies. And he will say that uh, col- uh, coloniality of power is this uh, system of appropriation that is created in, colon- in colonial uh, societies that operates in two different ways. Um, first, it operates through capitalist relations, and I think here comes our what we're talking about, Marx. Uh, Marx coming up over and over again. So it comes um, from the appropriation of labor, of wage labor, through the appropriation of capital, but also coloniality of power is expressed through the racial taxonomy of people. And he'll argue that uh, colonialism came with this double motive, both capitalism and racial a racial stratification and taxonomy. And these uh, these two factors, they were embedded within the system. And this uh, this, create, this created a, a bomb, a diversity of different inequalities um, that embedded uh, racial classification and racist structures uh, to the actual composition of capital and the composition of the capitalist system. And and, Quijano, and Quijano's concept is really interesting, right? Because it starts to develop this idea beyond uh, De Cell and beyond Mignolo that it's uh, modernity. And as Gilly was talking about the universal man, it's not only about philosophy here. I think the step forward, I think in Quijano's thoughts is that it's not only about thought and about modernity, but also about capital relations, about our economic relations with each other. Um, and I think that's where he hits a really interesting spot here. Yeah, thank you for bringing all these really, really important points to the uh, discussion. Um, as you're saying, like I think it's important to have um, or like notice like the difference between like colonization, but also like what coloniality means and what neocolonialism means um, in this context, um, and also how uh, coloniality is like this perpetuation of of the of the process of colonization and how um in one way or another is it still present in in our daily um 
circumstances. So for example, uh, I don't know in the, about, in the, about uh, Brazil, but in case of Ecuador, I know that there are um, companies uh, from Europe that um, work with the government for the different services that the government provides. So at the end, like we are still being, like there's still this huge influence of um, European powers or even like in this in the case of the US, like uh, North American companies and yeah, so like companies that they still have um, assets and they still have influence over Latin American countries. Uh, but here I think it's important to notice that how, how resistance works. Uh, so we can look at the, the case of, of the Chilean uh, indigenous group, the Mapuches, and how throughout history they, they have resisted against all these, like the process of colonization and how they have to adapt, like how, how they work in order to keep their their beliefs, keep their, their traditions, keep their, their, their communities um, as a way of resistance. So, so yeah, I think it's just important to, to realize how coloniality works how it has worked in the, in the past, but also how it continues to work uh, in Latin America until present day, how even, even maybe through foreign investment or um, the, uh, what's the name? The, the companies, uh, the European and North American companies that have their factories in Latin America um, that work in our region because we have, as we were saying before with, with Marx, like the cheap labor, uh, we don't have as uh, many uh, regulations um, in terms of, of labor, in terms of um, uh, other rights for, for the workers. So I think it's important to consider all these factors to really understand how coloniality and uh, post-colonial studies can play a huge role in creating these alternative spaces and uh, possibilities within like Latin American history and Latin American uh, future. I just want to build build from what you were saying, Raquel. Very interesting, by the way. I just want to build on what you're saying about how oh, there are factories and there's still this massive influence of European and North American uh, uh, companies in Latin America. I want to just say as well, there's a massive political influence of uh, mainly uh, North American and specifically Yankee um, Yankee political forces still act massively Kill those in Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then the, yeah, this, this, uh, I, I refuse to say, I, I try my best, just a, a parenthesis, I try my best not to use the term American because we are all American here. Uh, so I use, like, use the point. term Thank Yankee you. or in Portuguese, estadounidense, but in English it doesn't exist, so I have to say Yankee. Anyways, uh, this, this, uh, this power, this hand coming from the United States still massively affects uh, Latin America. For example, only last year, uh, the United States actively helped promote a coup in Bolivia that ousted President uh, Evo Morales over election irregularities, while only last week the Republican Party admitted putting fake ballot boxes in California. If that had happened in Bolivia, I'm 100% sure there would have been an interference of the Organization of American States uh, uh, sponsored by the United States. And since uh, something uh, sketchy, such as putting fake ballot boxes happened in the United States, no one said or did anything. Where's the OAS then, right? So uh, just a, a comment on this double standard and how uh, the United States is still acting politically in Latin America in putting down uh, governments, such as in the case of Bolivia only last year. And we can also draw attention here to, to the case of Puerto Rico and how, I don't know, I feel that the United States has uh, such a, like they, they still feel like the, and they do, like 
uh, unfortunately, but they do have the upper hand in like Latin, uh, like Latin American affairs. Like they have so much power, they have so much influence. And um, I still like sometimes like, like this idea of like um, going to the North, like going to the States and like, cause the States is better. Like life in the States is way better than in Latin America. Just how we have internalized this process of like how we like these ideals that we have about Latin American lifestyle, Latin American values and beliefs and like democracy. But then we are like, what about like the fact that democracy is in decline in the States? So I don't know, it just, it's it's really unfortunate. But the, the fact that like the United States has so much power over Latin American affairs is um, something that we really need to to think about. And I think that post-colonial studies um, as I was saying before, like creates these spaces for us to think about how uh, we can reconstruct Latin America. Yeah, because definitely when when Mignolo and when Desel are talking about um, coloniality and talking about moder- modernity, their main a lot of their discussions are being historical. Um, but we also have to understand in uh, uh, in our modern day context what are the axes that are operating nowadays, right? Of course, it's no longer Portugal and Spain that are. Uh, in in control of of the Americas anymore. We have new forces that operate in the system and they're not necessarily colonial forces, right? They're imperialist forces. um, And that would be constitute, that constitutes different relations from from colonial relations, but they're so really important and they stemmed from this this understanding, this study of of post-colonialism from the authors that we're talking about here. Um, and especially in their, especially in their critique of capitalism, I think, I think it's, I think it's interesting how these authors, they, they end up, they end up always going back to the critique of capitalism, right? And that's why I say it's so, such a revamp of Marx, right? Because a lot of the ideas are already there, and so, and so that if if you've read Marx already, you can, you've, you're gonna identify a lot of his concepts already there, but like. We, uh, given with given another name or giving a little bit of more complexity or usually I think applying a lot of, of understanding to this into systems of epistemology I think that they argue a lot I think even Kihan will say that uh, that the that colonization appears not only in our like productive relations but also in our imaginary this idea that you have uh, the coercive domination of the population, not only in uh, in their ways of producing labor and in their ways of economic produ- production, but also in their ways of producing knowledge. Right? It's their 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 ways of producing knowledge are tamed, are regulated, are controlled. I, I say this all the time. So uh, the printing press only come to only came to Brazil in 1808 when when uh, when the, the the Portuguese court was fleeing uh, the Napoleonic invasion. So we had this control of media and of, of our knowledge production for, for centuries, for centuries. Uh, and this, and, and of course that we can see the reflection of these aspects up, up until nowadays. And it's, and it's a reflection of these, these aspects. And I, I, I think that, for example, how you said about how you have this idea that the U.S. is better and that people should go to the U.S. It's the same kind of, of universalist modernist perspective that you people used to have of Europeans in the 19th century. I think the, the system operates in a very similar way up until nowadays, uh, of course, with different actors. Um, but it's important to recognize these different actors and, and how they operate, right? And and, 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 and and how to identify sometimes the usual suspects, right? I think that's uh, despite anything, despite the different change in actors, you still have 
the action of capitalism. You should still have the action of racism, of racial hierarchies. So they're still present nowadays. And gender. And gender, of course. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's and that's the last aspect <laughs> that we need to t- touch upon, right? That we haven't touched on, right? Yes, please. Um, yeah, that's really important. And that was the part that was missing in Kihano's argument, and and he and he actually talks about the the construct the, the control of sex and reproduction, but only in really uh, in in really passing terms. But the person to really construct this is Lugones, right? Um, and and she's really important in, in the in the study of intersectionality. Um, so intersectionality was a term um, that was like created and adopted into like academia by this uh, scholar from the United States, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, if I pronounce her name correctly. Um, so uh, the the term uh, was based from like this idea that Black women are not. Um, only experiencing oppression because of being black, but also because they are they are women. Um, so I think like the, this term is just like looks at the intersection of our identities and positionalities. So for example, um, I'm gonna use my case. So I'm a, a Latino woman. So I'm from I'm from Latin America. Well, I'm from Ecuador. I'm from Latin America. We will look at my class, at my ability, at my gender, at my um, sex identity. Uh, we will look at my sexual orientation. We will look at the different privilege and positions of not like not necessarily privilege that I have, and how all these come together and like create complexities based on the system that we currently live in. So, for example, as a POC, uh, I do experience some levels of oppression comparing to uh, my white peers. For example, um, as a woman, I I do like t- the topics such as uh, the gender gap is something that actually affects me because uh, of of, of like by being a, a woman, right? So it's like looking at all these, our identities and positionalities and how they come together and like they create more complexities within um, a specific context. And I think that's something that Lugones um, adds to this conversation of post-colonial studies, like how uh, intersectionality uh, plays a huge role in um, this creation of different histories, different, different alternatives of um, Latin America. And how I think that for Lugones in, in particular, like intersectionality, like she, I think she defined it as a, as a, as a mechanism to to control to control like specific subjects, and how so for example the the intersections of race, class, and gender were used to control uh, a specific group such as black people, such as as, as women, and other uh, minority groups. So I think it's really important to look at intersectionality. I think it adds a, adds a lot of value to post-colonial studies. Um, I think it's important to look at it and, and use it, like use the the intersectional perspective in a lot of studies. Like I, I'm doing a, a major in uh, women and gender studies, and we we try to use um, or like analyze things from an intersectional perspective almost like all the time. Uh, but mainly because it I think it provides a a broader perspective on on the matter and I think as comparing to other ways of thinking and and looking at specific uh, topics I think that intersectionality provides uh, more understandings of how the identities that we have come together and how what role they play uh, in our lives and how uh, they position ourselves in a specific place in the current society.
Yeah, and Lugones developed some really interesting ideas. She she would argue that uh, the concept heterosexuality and this gender division came with European modernity. It is intrinsic to the process of colonialism. So in one of her articles, she she even argues for the existence of a third gender. This idea that not that you would have a binary between genders, but a third gender would be a place of a space of alternatives, a place where people could transition between any kind of genders. And this would occur in many indigenous um, tribes and in many indigenous peoples in Latin America. And this and even systems of matriarchy that were uh, that occurred in many Inca tribes, for example, didn't uh, were completely obliterated and destructed by the by, by the patriarchy that was imposed by the European system. Um, and this can be felt can be felt and seen specifically with indigenous people that had uh, that had societies that were completely uh, uh, that were headed by white women and were completely changed toward this this sexist men uh, uh, hierarchy structure that was imposed by the colonial system. And it's really interesting to see how it really pervades everything, right? It pervaded how people thought, how people acted, how people produced, how people have sex, how people saw each other. So that's why post-colonial thought is, is so expansive, right? Because it encompasses all areas of thought. It encompasses this, this phenomenon that was, uh, that, that, that pervaded the whole of society and that uh, infected not only uh, our economics but our political structure and the way that we thought and the way that we see each other. So I think that in that sense, uh, I think in, in conclusion, postcolonial th- studies can can offer us all these tools, as as Raquel was saying, uh, to reinterpret our reality in a more uh, in a more coherent way that integrates not only gender, but our, our, our class relations, our political relations, our intellectual relations. And I think that's an interesting focus on many of these post-colonial authors is the understanding of production of knowledge and where it comes from and where knowledge is dominated and, and whether it, it, where, where it's produced and where is it consumed. So all of, this, all of these discussions operate within uh, the, the post-colonialism within the thought of 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 post-colonialism any other thoughts that you have to like close up as in and sum up i think this was my my general sum of what post-colonialism post-colonial thought is uh do you have any other ideas i don't i think we we covered it very well especially you leo it was brilliant yeah thank you for the lecture <laughs> uh, but yeah i think it's like it it served the point of um providing a maybe like introduction uh, to uh, post-colonial studies. Thank you for joining us. I think it yeah. was a great conversation. And as always, there's there there like there are more topics that we can talk about. I know that some of the things we didn't mention um, in like a specific. The as always, there are way more things that we can talk about. But I think it's just a it was a great introduction to post-colonial studies, um, to post-colonial feminism, and thank you. Yeah, and this reminding everyone, this this can all be learned through the Latin American Studies program at the University of Toronto. So all of this content, Lugones, uh, Quijano, uh, Mignolo, 
and do sell. They're all offered through um, LAS uh, 200 and 300 courses on Latin American thoughts. And they're all, they're courses that I've taken and that I recommend anyone interested in Latin America uh, taking them too. So thank you very much everyone for coming. Uh, reminding everyone that El Cafecito is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you again. And I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.